Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, uh, my name is Tom Eichem. I'm the executive pastor here. And if you're visiting with us, our senior pastor, Mark Saunders, is on sabbatical. And he will be back uh, August 14th. And so this week you have me. Next week is uh, John Weaver. And then uh, after that, Shane, our high school pastor, is going to be speaking. And then we're going to end up the summer with Travis. And then uh, Mark will be back after that. Uh, it leads me to tell you that uh, Mark and actually Travis and uh, some others are in uh, Uganda. And so that trip is currently out. If you would remember to pray for them as they're over there, uh, that would be fantastic. Last night, two of our high school teams came back from North Georgia and from Kentucky. And so we're very thrilled that they're back. I'm looking forward to hearing some of their stories. I'll tell you, as they got off the van uh, after service last night, I saw the Kentucky team. They looked tired. <laughs> so um, leaders and students both. But it was fun to see them, see them back in town. Uh, I, I need to share with you some things, some changes that are coming up here at Baylife in the fall and kind of give you an overview of some of those changes, specifically in our family ministries, and give you some of the rationale uh, on why those changes are taking place before I jump into my sermon. And so, uh, <clears throat> typically, after summer, we move back to three services. Uh, and so this year, we're not going to do that. We're going to try something different. We're going to stay at two services uh, in the, in the, uh, on Sunday mornings. We'll still obviously have our Saturday night service. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to make a subtle change to the timing of the second service on Sunday. We're going to move it to 1045 if you sometimes come at that service, just know that that won't happen until August 14th. But if you do start making it a practice to come at 1045, you'll still be on time. So that's kind of nice for what's currently the 11. Um, and so we're making that adjustment, and we're going to see kind of how that goes together. We're making some, the reason is we're making some changes um, in our family ministry. As we've been, we're constantly looking at things going, man, how can we do this better? How can we disciple people better? How can we grow people better? How can we um, help our families to engage a little better? And so as we've been looking at some of the research, uh, some of the research has led us to some of these decisions. So let me walk you through some of the changes and, and explain the rationale at the end here. We're going to keep middle school on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and so they're going to meet at the 9 o'clock hour, but we're not going to have high school meet at the second service. High school is going to be moving in the fall to Sunday night, and we're going to uh, have them uh, have the campus here on Sunday night. You may know this if you have a high school student, but typically they're not totally awake in the morning, and I know it's a shock, but uh, we're going to kind of adjust to that and adjust to their schedule, um, and so they're going to be moving to Sunday night. They'll have various discipleship options throughout the week, uh, like one-on-two, one-on-three kind of pockets that work around the schedule of a high school student. If you've ever met a high school student, you know that their schedules are incredible these days. And so uh, we're going to be moving towards uh, discipleship um, outside of large group format throughout the week with them. On Wednesday night, we're going to have middle school will continue to meet, but they're going to shift over to the loft. And then we're going to do something different that we've never been able to do here. We're going to have a midweek program for elementary students. Uh, we're going to take the Awana program that's currently, uh, during the fall, had been at the 8 o'clock service, and we're going to move it to Wednesday night. Uh, we've been seeing some great things happen in the Awana program where, where, where kids are being able to memorize Scripture and put that together. And we want to open that up for more, uh, more opportunity for, for students and for children to be able to commit God's Word to their heart. Uh, it also enables us to do the program fully, which we're not able to do on a Sunday morning. And so we're going to make that adjustment. 
college ministry and career, college and career ministry is going to shift from Sunday night to Thursday night. And they're going to be starting meeting here at the campus. And then when the renovation is done in Mango, they'll shift over to that campus as it's closer to USF and hopefully give us more of a, uh, a foothold uh, into that campus as well. Now, I know some of you are sitting there and you're listening to this and you're like, man, I got a high school student and I got a middle school student and now they're on different days and I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, I have two high school students and one middle school and it was really nice to have them all go up on a Wednesday night. Uh, but what I'll tell you is this, in, in the research that we've done and, and as we've looked at things and looked, followed some of our own students, the students that stayed committed to Jesus as they walked through college and they, they walked in young adult, they had way more connectors with adults in our church. They were connected with the church as a whole instead of just the youth group. And so we wanted to provide opportunities for our students to connect in that manner. By moving high school group off Sunday, what it allows us to do is get those that are gifted in worship and, and be able to be around our adults and be able to plug into the worship team on a Sunday morning. Uh, what it enables us to do is those who are good at hospitality, it enables us to plug them into and be around our adults as they're greeting, as, as they're serving on the welcome team, whether it be in the parking lot, uh, whether it be in the, uh, the greeter at the door or uh, the usher. It uh, allows us to get them involved in the children's ministry and serving there as well. On Wednesday night, there's still an option for a, for a high school student. We'd love to see our high school students plug in and lead in Awana and with the middle school ministry and serve as uh, junior leaders in there. What we know is that students who um, sit and just kind of absorb and absorb and absorb and never wring the sponge out, so to speak, uh, they just, they, 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 there isn't that same connection. Um, what I've seen in students who are serving in different ways and, and if they have to just listen and hear it, it's one thing, but if they have to prepare to teach a younger person it, wow, it, it, they grab it in a whole new light, in a whole new way. And so we're going to try this uh, this semester, and we're going to uh, see what God does. Um, I know some of you are like, man, that's really uncomfortable for me. That, that changes everything for me. Uh, and let me just ask you this. If, if, if indeed the percentages are correct in the research that we're doing, would you be willing to go through a little discomfort if it meant that your student would be walking with Jesus all the way through college. So we're, we're making the change. We're going we're gonna to see how that happens and how that works together because that's our heart's desire. All right. Uh, if you have questions about that or concerns about that, um, I will be over here in the corner or feel free to give me a call. I'd love to talk to you more about it and hear some of those questions and some of those concerns because uh, I know it's not a perfect schedule, but we're trying our best to, to uh, come alongside and, and see our students disciple and grow. And to be honest with you, as they plug into the ministries that you as adults are also serving in, it's going to challenge you to grow too. And that's going to be awesome. So, all right. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into Acts. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, for this morning and uh, for the opportunity that uh, we have to look into your word and to connect. Lord, it seems uh, week after week after week that uh, we see evidence of evil in our world and and heartbreak. And so, Lord, we're... uh, We come to church and we look for a word from you. We look for encouragement through worship. 
that we could see your hand moving in ways. And God, as we look into this chapter in Acts, God, I pray that you would help us to see how you had planned for the beginning for those that weren't Jewish to come into the Christian faith and how that relates to us and help us to see how we can apply that to our community and to our world. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, it's in your name, Jesus, pray these things. Amen. I'm just, uh, have you ever had something great happen and then all of a sudden there's like that want, want, want moment where like you, maybe you came back from an awesome vacation and then, oh, hey, look, the air conditioner's broke. Want, 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 right? And the whole shift of coming back refreshed and all that and excited and energized turns into, oh, man. This passage is like that. I mean, there, there has been amazing things happening and going on uh, in the Christian church. Paul and Barnabas have, done, have been doing some amazing work. In the middle of the persecution, there's been amazing signs and wonders, and they've been seeing the Gentiles come to know Jesus at alarming rates. It's been awesome. They come back to the church of Antioch, and they begin to share the things that are going on and what God has done. And then there is this wah, wah, wah moment in chapter 15. And so would you read with me, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 15. But chapter 15, verse 1, it says this. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That statement, some men came down from Judea, leads us to believe that they came from Jerusalem. Uh, they were probably coming, claiming the authority of the Jerusalem church, uh, specifically James, who was the leader of the church at that time, that he had sent them. And so they were kind of setting themselves up and going, no, 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 we're from them, and here's the deal. Here's the problem. And they were setting themselves up as uh, ambassadors from James, and, and their opponent being Paul in this moment. And so that's their boast. We know, as we keep reading in the chapter, that James didn't actually send them, for he claims he's like, yeah, they weren't from us in this, but that was their boast. And they were trying to set the two apostles against each other. They had really a Pharisee background, and, and they kind of came in there like, oh, listening to all these great signs and wonders, like, ho, 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 porn of order. Have they been circumcised, as is the Jewish custom? Because, you know, they need to have that happen beforehand. And so this is what they were teaching the brothers. Unless you were circumcised, as is the custom of Moses, you could not be saved. This isn't just a preference thing. This is a big issue that they're bringing up. This is a big deal that they're arguing over. Now, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to read about it being instituted, it's in Genesis chapter 17, where it's shown as the sign of God's covenant between him and Abraham and Abraham's descendants. But this wasn't their only demand of the Gentile converts. In fact, you see in verse 5 that they're saying, okay, you not, not only do you need to be circumcised, but you also need to obey the law of Moses. And follow him in this. Follow Moses in this. And so they couldn't accept conversion or salvation without circumcision. They had organized themselves into a pressure group. You see this in scripture. They're called either the Judaizers or referred to as the Judaizers if someone is teaching. This is basically, if you hear that term Judaizers, it's the group that said, man, the new Christians need to be uh, circumcised. Or they were also conveniently called the circumcision group. Can you imagine that button? I'm part of the circumcision group. All right. 
The book of Galatians actually has uh, plenty to say about this. You see this in really, if you want to do some more research later, it's in chapters 2 and chapter 3. We need to be clear about what they're saying and what the issue was. They're insisting that without circumcision, salvation was not an option. You could not be saved. And of course, circumcision was the God-given sign of the covenant, but these Judaizers were going a step further and saying it was a condition of salvation. They were telling Gentile converts that faith in Jesus was not enough. Faith in Jesus was not enough. They need to add to that faith circumcision. They need to add to that circumcision observance of the law. I'm a formula person, and so what they were basically saying was this. Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. This is a good point to stop and ask the question. What requirement do you sometimes add to salvation? What extra do you say, man, if I, if I see this in their life, then I know, then, then they're saved. So, yes, believe in Jesus, but then do these things and make sure you do these things to be saved. We bring a rose out on stage and we all cheer. How many of you go, yeah, but did they really? I mean, did they walk through these steps? Have we seen that change? Maybe we put it in a different way. Uh, maybe it's uh, Jesus plus stop Fill in the blank, you know, stop doing drugs, then add Jesus to it, then you got salvation. Stop smoking, stop cussing, stop lying. I mean, all those good, are good things to stop, but they're not requirements of salvation. You see, change is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by self-discipline. And so the issue was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was at dispute. The very foundation of Christian doctrine Christian faith was being undermined. And so you can understand what happens there in verse 2. It says this, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's biblical talk for they started screaming at each other, right? They're yelling, they're angry, they're having this passionate argument. Uh, the Judaizers are saying, hey, listen, we got the support of Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no, you don't. There's no way. And so the problem is it leads to this confusion and this division in the church. I, I got to tell you, I admire Luke's honesty in including this dissension and this debate for us to be able to read about and learn from. He doesn't gloss over uh, the warts of the, of the New Testament church at times. So what they do, they, they gather together Paul and Barnabas and they send them to Jerusalem. And if you skip to verse 4, when they arrive in Jerusalem, it says this, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and by the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Mm. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so they were critical instead of rejoicing. Their concern was that these Gentiles needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. The reason is their, their concept of holiness hadn't, hadn't changed yet. They still saw holiness as outward conformity to the Mosaic law rather than an inward change brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't fully understand the new covenant and were living under the old covenant. 
in which holiness is this external code of conduct that separated them, cast them apart, hold them apart from other people. Some of these Pharisees had been converted to Christ, and they were insisting on their version of Christianity. To become Christian, one had to become Jewish first. Now here's the problem. Those Pharisees that rose up in that day, they weren't intrinsically evil. They weren't mean-spirited in this. They were just trying to hold on to their tradition. They were trying to hold on to their tradition. I mean, just put yourself in their shoes for a second. Into this neat, orderly, well-manicured Pharisee world, Christ came. Just picture the New Testament, the Gospels. And he blew up that neat, orderly, well-manicured world. And over time, some of them came to faith in Jesus. And it was natural for them to find, to have a hard time to make a clean break with their past as a Pharisee's. And although Christian, they couldn't give away centuries of the distinctives that had set them apart from the world. They couldn't give away their traditions. In their minds, if Jesus was the Hebrew Messiah, then anyone wanting salvation would first need to become Hebrew. And so they banded together and said, Hey, listen, yeah, I see that you're going on your way to Calvary to worship Jesus at the cross, but before you go there, make sure you stop by Mount Sinai and pick up the law of Moses on the way. But here's the truth. We're all influenced by our backgrounds. Each one of us has an experience or a doctrinal position or a practical or a traditional distortion of our past experience. And the challenge for us is to identify those points of misemphasis, those points that pull us away from the message of Christ, and not confuse others with those. You see, the truth is, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, now Luke doesn't give us details of the much discussion or debate that took place, but he does summarize three speeches of three, the three apostles. First, Peter goes, then Paul and Barnabas kind of get up and recount some things, and then James speaks. We're going to walk through those speeches and learn from them a little bit. Peter says this, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so after much discussion, Peter stands up. And this is pretty interesting, because if you go to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and just keep reading, you'll see Paul confronting Peter for hanging out and and eating with the circumcision party and holding off and kind of casting the Gentile Christians to the side because they haven't been circumcised. And Paul gets up in his face and is like, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's faith alone in Jesus. It's by his grace. It's by his mercy. Knock it off. And here you see Peter arguing on Paul's side where Peter's going, yeah, he's right. And he's arguing alongside of Paul. 
Peter, when Peter stands up, he refers them back to the event that took place in Acts chapter 10, where the Gentile Cornelius and his entire family received Christ and the Holy Spirit through faith. Peter's conclusion, God made no distinction between us and them. And then he comes with a very stunning question, a stunning pronouncement. He says this in verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. So Peter asked the Judaizers this, hey, you couldn't keep the law. Why are you saddling someone else with it? You couldn't do this either, so why are you adding this as an extra requirement for them? It was the ultimate, do as I say, not as I do. Yes, God had given them the Mosaic Law. The law was to reveal to people their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. It was the Mosaic Law that Christ himself said, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. The law leads them to Christ at every turn by demonstrating that they are sinners in need of mercy, in need of grace. And so Peter moves to this grace alone. Uh, We believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. It doesn't matter if you're the most educated person, most well-read person in this room. It's through the grace of God that you're saved. It doesn't matter if you're the youngest child in this room. It's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved. He's saying, we Jews have not obtained salvation by obedience to the law, so why do we expect the Gentiles to do so? So Peter concludes, it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that conclusion, you can tell that Peter's, Peter's speech is a turning event in the whole thing. Why? Because there's silence. His speech leads to silence. Uh, when we listen, we learn. As he makes his final affirmation, we know that he's pro- he is echoing the same thing that Paul said to him in Philippians. Through grace of Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it is Jesus plus nothing that leads to salvation. The central theme of Peter's testimony is not just that the Gentiles had, had received, and had heard the gospel, had received by faith the Holy Spirit, had been purified because of their faith. The central theme of his whole argument was like, there is no difference between what God did in their life and what God did in our life. There's no difference, so why are we going to add to that? God did an amazing work here. Let's not add more requirements. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas, to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I love it. The, the assembly goes silent and Barnabas and Paul kind of pick up and are like, okay, silence. Good, I'll speak. And they jump in and they start telling, hey, listen, let's tell you all about the journey. Let's tell you all about what happened on the way. Let's tell you about the persecution. But among that persecution, let's tell you that what God did, the amazing signs and miracles that God did. You can't deny that God is in this because of these things. And they listened and they were amazed. And as they recounted back the miracles that God had done, if you look back at that first missionary journey, the same miracles that Jesus performed, the same miracles that the apostles performed, Paul and Barnabas did as well. And he's saying, listen, God was in this, 
God was in this, and God's in this as well. The assembly was like, whoa. The signs and the miracles. After they finished speaking, James replied. He says this, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And it's with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now James' first statement here in in verse 14 is, is significant. He says this, Simeon. He doesn't refer to him as Peter, which Peter is, uh, as Luke did in verse 7, Peter is the Greek translation of the Aramaic Cephas, which Jesus gave Peter that name, right? Meaning rock. Uh, He doesn't call him Simon. In fact, if you look in your New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, uh, Peter is called Simon about 75 times. That's the Greek version of his name. Only two times in the New Testament is he called Simeon, which is the Hebrew version version of his name. What James is saying is is this. He's like, hey, listen, I'm Jewish. Simeon's Jewish. You're Jewish. But God is at work here. Let's open up our eyes. It's interesting as they appealed for the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, uh, Peter appealed to God's, uh, God's leading God's movement. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter had a dream, right? And that's how he knew that God was moving. So it was this impression that, man, I feel like God's telling me to do this. Paul and Barnabas, they appeal to experience. God's definitely got to be in this because of all the cool things that are happening here. Look at the miracles that God is doing. Look what's happening. Look at, we can't deny that. James appeals to Scripture. He says, listen, this was foretold by the prophets. This isn't a surprise to God. He planned this, that the Gentiles would become a part of the church. If you want to see if if God moving in your life, those three things work in harmony. There is a leading. There is a prompting. There is an impression that, man, God is calling me to do this. There is uh, signs that where you see things that take place that, man, only God could have done that. Right? And then it matches with Scripture. If you're like, you know, God's calling me to steal here. And look, I didn't get caught. And so it was amazing that I didn't get caught. So obviously God wanted me to have that. No, that's just you didn't get caught. Because it doesn't match with Scripture. And so I find it interesting that the apostles have this leading, this experience in Scripture. And James here quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, when he replies back. And he says this, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, meaning the temple. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who call my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. You see, the inclusion of the Gentiles was not a divine afterthought, but it was foretold by the prophets. If you go to Amos and you look that passage up, your Bible will probably list, instead of saying Gentiles, it will list the countries surrounding Israel, meaning those who are not Jewish. There was agreement between what God had done through the apostles and what God said through the prophets. There was this witness 
And so James gives his judgment in verse 19. He says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James, who has been kind of leaned upon as the champion from the circumcision party, declared himself in full agreement with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And he concludes that the church should not make it difficult (laughs) for those who are turning to God. Get that. The church should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. James gives us a principle for living as believers of Jesus, as children of grace. As children of grace, do not make non-biblical requirements of others to encounter grace. Don't get in the way. Specifically those that come from secondary cultural traditions. And that day it meant not putting upon the the, uh, Gentiles the Hebrew lifestyle. Today, it means we're not to make areas of our lifestyle that aren't spelled out in Scripture normative for others. How we dress, how we run the church, our standards of living, what we think, how we pro- uh, what we think is proper, political preferences, personal taste, musical preferences. These should not get in the way of God's grace and God's moving. I think we easily push our preferences on others. Uh, We'll assume they look at things our way or they're unspiritual. And so many times we often put in the preferences of our history, of our past, as almost more, more important than the grace of God. I mean, many of you remember churches that, man, if you don't sing the hymns, you might not be Christian. Nicole and I used to live in a town called uh, Polly's Island. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we send two middle school te- teams there uh, this summer. Uh, they actually stayed at the church that uh, I worked at for about three years as their middle school and high school pastor. I, I remember we would go to the beach a lot uh, because it was, I mean, it was five minutes away from the church. It was right there. It was great. And uh, when we'd go, normally we'd go to what's called the South Side Beach. It's on the, surprisingly, south side of the island. Uh, but it has this jetty that kind of, this rock jetty that goes out. And then there's beach for a way, and then it kind of curves around where there's this inlet that the water comes back, and it's called the creek side, that goes back there. And so that water rushes back and forth and back and forth. And so you can imagine that um, there are times that there naturally these rip currents that form at different times. And if you're not familiar with the beach and not familiar that that might happen, um, you maybe go in too far and you're in trouble. And I remember sitting there and, and hanging out with uh, the guys in, in my group that surfed, and, and uh, we're all kind of sitting there, and I'm lit, sitting on the beach, and I'm talking to a few of them, and there's a few of them out with the waves and, and kind of catching some waves and surfing a little bit. And we're looking at this, I don't know, eight- or nine-year-old kid with a hat on that's, that's just kind of unaware of what's happening in the ocean, Right? And all of a sudden, he walks a little too far, and, and then he just, vroom, he just disappears. And he is, if you've ever seen a rip current, right, he is just shot out. 
And uh, he ends up, and the way the rip current works there, it kind of naturally moves you towards that jetty. And as the water comes in, if you're not a good swimmer and you're in around that rocky jetty, it, the, it can just pound you into the rocks um, out at the far end. And so the guys that grew up there that are surfers totally know the way in which that goes. And so one of my, one of my teens saw this, and he went over, and he grabs the kid from under the water and pulls him up and pulls him onto his board. Right? And, he, and it's about this time that Mama Bear starts noticing that someone's gone and not there. And she's like standing up and she, ah! And so, you know, kind of, who wouldn't be, right? I mean, their eight or nine year old kid just disappeared and got shot out into the water. Uh, and, and, and she's freaking out. Now, the kid from my group comes in, surfs in uh, with him, you know, on the board, hanging out. And there is tears, there is hugs. There is crying, there is, yes, make sure this is my boy, and then there is more tears, more hugs, more crying. That's the reaction we'd expect, right? I mean, one of great joy, that kid was gone, and someone saved him. He was dead, and someone brought him to life. It was interesting. Can you imagine if that mom was like, oh, that's great and all, but where's his hat? Why does he not have his hat anymore? This is unacceptable. We sometimes do that. Someone has moved from death. And we know, gosh, the Holy Spirit, sometimes when it comes inside of someone, they are going this way and they make an about face and it is a 180 turn and go. And you're like, yes! And we know that some people, when they receive the Holy Spirit, there's a change that takes place in the inside and the sanctification process is a little slower as it develops. And we look and we go, man, there's no way. Where's his hat? Why doesn't that guy have a hat? You see, these extra biblical restrictions take their toll. They block the proclamation of God's grace, his divine favor, free and undeserved to a dying world. Now, you may have read this chapter before, and you might be sitting there and go, wait, 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 wait. James makes some restrictions. Let's talk about those. And he does. And let me explain here what he does. Verse 20 says this. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has been in every city, those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now let's look. First of all, I want you to know something. There's nothing in here that he says this relates to salvation, which was the claim that was being made at the beginning of the chapter. Everything in here is related to community. And let me point that, let me show you that. Uh, there is to be no idolatry. Obviously, there's only one God to be worshipped, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's not far off. Sexual immorality was to be forbidden in all cases uh, because sexual immorality was rampant among the Gentiles. He wanted them to live apart, that there would be a difference, that the community, the culture could see that there is a difference between them and a believer. But why the third restriction? Abstaining from things strangled by blood 
Well, the answer is found in the text. It says this, For Moses has been preached in every city in the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, there were Jewish communities that existed in every city. And what he's asking them is, let's not do anything that offends the religious scruples of the day. Let's not do anything that would keep one of those Jewish people from coming to know Jesus. In his response, James gives a second and yet complementary principle for us living as children of grace. And it's simply this. As children of grace, be willing to restrict your freedom for the sake of others finding grace. Be willing to restrict your freedom for the sake of others finding grace. There wasn't anything intrinsically wrong with eating a rare steak. Paul states the same principle in a, in, a, in a different way in 1 Corinthians. He says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. To win. You see, these guidelines that James is putting down, uh, they ensure really table fellowship in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles of that church in that day. They enhance the possibility of local Jewish evangelism. This has nothing to do with Gentiles' personal individual salvation, but these guidelines are directed at Jewish sensibilities and really, uh, pagan worship of the day. Now, interestingly enough, the Levitical laws in the Old Testament, uh, they were given to accentuate distinction, that there would be a difference between us and them. Their very purpose was disfellowship. But here the purpose is just the opposite. Uh, These essentials were to help maintain fellowship between these two cultures in this newly forming churches. I'm not going to read the rest of the story. But basically what they do is they get together and they send Paul and Barnabas back with a letter with some people who are at the council. And they share that finding. And there is much rejoicing with the church in Antioch. Paul sums it up this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. See, good works are part of the believer's lives because they are saved. Not so they can be saved. They follow, not precede salvation. This was a matter of living in harmony with other believers and maintaining a good witness to those who are unsaved in their communities. And here's the truth. We have a world around us that is dying, that is in struggle all over the place. A world that desperately, desperately needs Jesus. Let me give you a small modern day example of how this might play out. Uh, Here at Baylife, uh, I can come dressed like this and I can get on the stage and I can teach and you guys can be 
fine with it. We, we say, hey, come as you are. Come as you're dressed. It's great. Wear a T-shirt? Great. Wear, wear a jersey in the, in the fall? Favorite football team? Fantastic. That's awesome. Happy. Love you here. Right? And we're just so happy that you're coming and that you're listening, that you're being a part. We want you to be comfortable. We don't want people to walk in and be like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to wear a suit. You know, and, and kind of have that moment. I can go teach the foundations class, and usually I'm in, in the week, I'm in a shorts and a, either a polo or a, or a T-shirt, and every, no one has any problem with that. When I go teach in Africa, I, I, I can't wear shorts and a T-shirt. It was interesting, the first time I went there, probably, gosh, 12 years ago, I remember talking with my host about that a little bit, and he's like, hey, do you have a tie? You need a tie. And I was like, really, a tie? He goes, yeah, you need a tie. And I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to share from God's word. I, I don't really, he goes, no, 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 you need a tie. I was like, what? He goes, Tom, let me ask you a question. If wearing a tie means someone can hear you talk about Jesus, are you willing to wear a tie? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Right? It's understanding the culture. It's put, did, did I have freedom to wear shorts? Yeah. Did I put that aside so that someone else could clearly hear the good news of Jesus? Was it worth it? Yes. Yes. Let's be a church that doesn't cloud the message of God's grace with all the extra stuff that keeps people from coming to him. Let's be a church that's willing to surrender things we're allowed to do so that others might meet him. Let me close us in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning. And we are thankful for your words and acts, for the way in which you moved through the Jerusalem Council. Lord, may we be a church that the Holy Spirit moves through, that makes known in word and deed in our community the goodness of your grace. May we be a church that clearly points to you. God, give us insight and wisdom as to how to do that, how to lay down the things that we need to lay down so that others can hear us, so that you might be made known. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Hey, normally we invite someone up to do the after party, and since I'm already here, I'm going to do it. Uh, in your bulletins are these uh, plug-in at Bailiff. I've just described to you some of the changes in the beginning of some of the things that are going on. And so we would love for you to, obviously, if some of you already know exactly where you're going to volunteer and just fill that out so we're uh, aware of where you're going to volunteer. If you're not and would like to talk to someone, there's people at the, informa- or the welcome uh, desk and that high-top table that's out there. You can place this at the welcome desk or at the high top table. There's a basket where you can place this in. But if you could, fill this out for us and let us know where you're going to be serving this fall. And with that, I'm going to dismiss you to plenty of donuts and other carbs. Have a good morning.